Have you heard? Sling TV offers the news you love for less. Hey, wait, you look and sound just like me. I am you. I'm the same news programs on Sling TV for less. You mean you're me, but for less money? A lot less. I'm all the favorite news programs and more on Sling TV, starting at just $40 a month. Everything great about me, but for less money? Which makes me greater, don't you think? Get the news you love and more for less. Start, Start saving, saving today. today. Visit Sling.com to see your offer. Sling. I'm Kevin Flynn with Rebecca Lavoie and Vea Pashos, and these are their stories. You think you know who did it, but you don't know who did it. Law and order, law and order, law and order. It's no ordinary police procedural, baby. It's the FNOG of police procedures, baby. Law and order, law and order, law and order, law and order. These are their stories, these are their stories. Welcome to These Are Their Stories, the podcast about network TV's most enduring crime franchise and the real-life cases that inspired their shows. I'm Kevin Flynn. Each podcast will break down an episode from either Criminal Intent, SVU, or Original Recipe. Today, we're looking at Special Victims Unit Season 1, Episode 7, Uncivilized. Joining me to do that is true crime author... Host of the podcast, Crime Writers On, my wife, Rebecca Lavoie. Hello, Rebecca. Hello, Kevin. And from the Nay Buzz podcast, it's Vea Pashos. Hi, Kevin. Hi, Rebecca. Hello. I'm so excited that you're on the show from all the way down under. Uh, not half as excited as I am. I guess that makes us twice as excited. <laughs> yes. <laughs> now, you live in... Don't make me do math so quickly. Yeah. <laughs> you live in Melbourne. Melbourne. Yes, that's right. Oh, is it Melbourne? <laughs> Tell me, well, how do you say it? Well, Melbourne, but we don't pronounce our oh, R's. Melbourne. Oh, okay, all right, that's fine. Right. <laughs> but if I'm, it's Melbourne, but we don't know what that. <laughs> South of Sydney. So how, how do you get exposed to this American institution known as law and order when you're living in Australia? Oh, there's no avoiding American culture in Australia. Not at all. It's everywhere. We only have about five or six free-to-air channels um, and then a few cable channels that make Australian content and everything else is international culture. Mm -hmm. So Law and Order, I've grown up with Law and Order the same way you guys did. So I didn't watch it because I was frightened of it, uh, but it was (laughs) all around me. You said that you watch it the same way we watch it. Does it mean you have like marathons on Saturday and Sunday where it's 15 different episodes and... Yeah, we've got on our cable network, there's a channel called Universal and it's always playing SVU. And sometimes I just have it as a screensaver so I can look at Mariska while I'm doing my housework. I know you like all of them, but you're you're a big SVU fan. Well, no, actually, I've not watched any of the others. I'm an SVU purist. Oh, okay. Wow, I love it. Yeah. So you don't know who Lenny Briscoe is? (laughs) I know of all of this. My boyfriend's a massive Law & Order fan and Criminal Intent. So he, Mm -hmm. we have fights because I haven't watched any of the originals. Again, it's a mixed marriage. I get it. Yeah. So uh, I devoured SVU late last year. I'm a freelancer, so it was in between freelance contracts and when you're between jobs and you can't find your identity, you just watch other people's work. And I watched essentially 15 seasons in three months. <laughs> it's also the same thing that you do when you're home sick from work, by the way. You can just like, like devour yes. eight seasons in one day. <laughs> and you talk about being a freelancer. In addition to your podcast, you were a script coordinator for one of our our listeners' favorite shows, Miss Fisher's Murder Mysteries. That's right. What exactly does a script coordinator do? Are you handing out paper or is it better than that? 
it's essentially that. Oh, but yes. I got to do a lot of research and they trained me up as a script editor. So I got to proofread all the scripts and because I've got a big mouth, I would just suggest dialogue all the time. I did what you're not meant to do as a young writer in a script department. I just kept suggesting my own ideas and sometimes that was well received and they, my dialogue made it in and sometimes people reminded me to go and do the photocopy. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> and at one point you appeared as a nun. Yeah, my crowning glory in the episode where, well, there's a murder investigation at a laundry, the, the the young girls that are working in the laundry and the stern nuns that are whipping them into shape. And I got to be a stern nun behind Essie Davis and mm. t- try not to pull focus. That sounds like an SVU episode. Oh, yeah. Well, the great thing is working on a murder mystery, it kind of shows you how the sausage is made a bit too much. So <laughs> now watching SVU and other crime shows, straight away I'm like, all right, they're showing us all the suspects. They can't show us too much of the perp, but they've got to show them. So which one are they showing us in the first few scenes? So, so in, in but, your professional opinion, what is the recipe for a good crime drama? Sexual tension. Oh, okay. <laughs> That's why she likes SVU so Apparently. much. Miss <laughs> Fisher was not so much about the murder mysteries as it was about her... Clothing. Uh, tete-a-tetes with yeah. Jack, Inspector Jack. Ah, you know, a lot of people say Mariska and Elliot Stabler, you know, Benson and Stabler have a lot of sexual attention in the mm. first few seasons of SBU. The cases are never imperiled because... Someone wasn't read their rights on Law and Order or on SVU. The lawyers are always arguing about some obscure or new interpretation of American law. So do these machinations of the U.S. justice system intrigue an international audience or just confuse you? A little both. It's still very much part of our cultural fabric. So I went through most of my early school years not realizing that in Australia, we don't have the Miranda rights oh. <laughs> speech that you guys do. We have a version of that spiel, but it's don't not I as sexy as yours. Don't I have the right to yours. remain silent? What? <laughs> you do, but we're going to tell you in a more business-like fashion. Do you get, do you get a lawyer? Yeah. Yes. <laughs> One will be appointed to you. Not a good lawyer. <laughs> it might be Crocodile Dundee. Oh, now, oh, now that's just a low blow. <laughs> that is. He I'm doesn't sorry. have a law degree. <laughs> Nobody's got a knife. <laughs> So on Law & Order SVU, uh, which cops are your favorite detective team? Favorite Law & Order detective team. I'm going to be controversial and just say one. It's just solo Olivia Benson. Oh, that's fine. That's a good pick. She's worth Just on her own. It's a very good pick. Just on her own. Why is that? (sighs) It's just too short a podcast. But she, I think as well, she shone without Elliot. Once he left, see you later, mate, she just became so much more. It's just her unrelenting empathy. No matter how bad life gets, she's there for you. She's there. No matter what she sees, no matter how bad it gets, she'll just keep fighting for you. And <laughs> that's all you need. And she's just got the most beautiful eyes. <laughs> and in this episode that we watched, like a lot of makeup, <laughs> like pre HGTV makeup. And I should ask you as well what's your favorite Olivia hair era? Oh, that's an excellent question. I'm actually enjoying the present Olivia hair era a lot. Mm. I felt like short hair Olivia hair era was just fine. It was just fine. Mm. Except that I feel like when she's got like the chin length lob, as I guess we call it now, um, you're able to sort of appreciate the chin without it being all chin. I don't know. What about you? Yeah, I liked the lob in the season 10, season 11 era, mm-hmm. uh, which 
was kind of more swishy and blue waved. And I really think that did a lot for her features. <laughs> Do you feel like we're excluding Kevin right now from his own podcast? <laughs> He's loving it. I, d- I have no idea how to answer any of those questions. <laughs> What's your favorite Olivia hair era, Kevin? Uh, the one in which she wore a hat? I don't... <laughs> I like she was her, undercover. I, I, I mean, I I, I I like her with short hair, but I obviously like her with long hair too. But I did I did think that the it was cute. Is that like a harsh way of? I mean, <sighs> whatever, whatever. I've got seventeen seasons to choose from. <laughs> Eighteen now. Eighteen seasons to choose from. So <laughs> Mariska is not just cute. No, she's not. Yeah, you find I know. a better word. I was <laughs> going to go to my thesaurus right now. <laughs> Let's see. Well, okay, I'll just go. Season seven, her hair was super empowered. Yeah, it was fierce. Right. It was fierce. <laughs> it was fierce. And do you have a favorite prosecutorial team? Favorite law and order district attorney prosecutorial team. I'm going to go solo once again and say ADA Rafael Barber. Mm. Really? You know what? I love him. It took a while. Was he a slow burn for you or did you like him right Not away? Not at all. <laughs> The, his first scene. Well, actually, his first scene was hideous because he, he he said such a sexist barb to Benson and Rollins. He looked at the supervisor that was with them and said, bring your daughters to work day. And I was like, oh, <laughs> no, no. But then the fact that he's just got the gall to say things like that yeah. and then just own it. I'm like, yeah, welcome, Barber. Welcome. Now, you didn't watch any other parts of the franchise. So do you know that he played like a super duper duper bad guy on Law and Order before he was the prosecutor on SVU? I've been told and I, I will be going back to have a look. <laughs> so I think I love the theatrics he brings because he comes from Broadway and just everything he says and every look he gives, it's, it's just it comes with so much drama. It'd be great if he could sing like his closing argument too. Right? <laughs> I'm waiting for him to sing. And also, by the way, he loves Olivia. That's just the fact is that he's in love with her. Really? And he, he defers to her a lot. Like she'll make a decision like on the other ADA relationships, Alex Cabot, you know, whatever. It's always like the cops, they don't really trust them. Like I have, I have a plan here, guys. Don't worry about it. But he does defer. He's like, oh, I'll figure out a way to make that a way we can prosecute. I'll figure out a law we can use. In this one. <laughs> yeah, partly because he loves her and also mainly because he respects her. In one of his early episodes, he went to one of her lectures he said yes yes i understand her argument because i went and watched one of her talks <laughs> he's following her around so maybe he needs to file a restraining order against himself well sure <laughs> can you do that no he does not he does not <laughs> now let's look at the first half of this episode season one episode seven uncivilized now we're going to be talking about fictional detectives investigating fictional sexually based offenses if you find that particularly heinous you may want to try a different episode of our podcast as we begin the svu squad is called to central park when an eight-year-old boy is found murdered in a shallow grave Ryan Davies, eight. A couple of kids playing touch football found his body in the woods behind the playing field. Naked from the waist down, signs of sexual assault. Look at your marks around his neck, bruises covered his body. No signs of a struggle, no weapon, no evidence was found at the scene. Cassidy and Munch are led to two teens, Mike D and Jimmy G. Vanilla Ice and Vanilla Icier. (laughs) They say a creepy guy on a bicycle has been riding through the park. Benson and Stabler find stamp collecting, bike riding, release sex offender Bill Turbot. Neighbors are enraged that Turbot is a murder suspect and a sex offender, but we know which one of those two things they're actually upset about. (laughs) While checking his alibi, an overly helpful bartender tells Stabler he saw Turbot sneak out for a couple of hours around the time of Ryan Davies' death. 
The strangle marks around Ryan's neck seem to match Turbert's bicycle chain. But just as they arrest the sex offender, the guilt-written bartender comes forward to say he made up the story about Turbert leaving the tavern, confirms his alibi, and now the cops know they are taking the wrong guy into custody. So, guys, GQ had a great article recounting SVU's first season and how it was grittier and more thoughtfully challenging than the subsequent seasons. Here we are in season one. Does this episode feel like it's from the same series that we still see on Wednesday night, Rebecca? I have to say one thing about this episode to me. First of all, you talked about how the cops were led to the two guys, Mike D and Jimmy G. It was a campfire girl that led them there, which seems more like a season 18 SVU moment. The campfire girl sort of saying, oh, it was definitely Mike G and (laughs) Jimmy G and Mike D. However, the theme of this episode being about the potential downside of the sex offender registry feels incredibly current to me. It feels very much like this is a civil rights issue-based episode. Like, are we mistreating the people among us who've committed crimes in the past and have served their time? It just felt very, very current in a really surprising way, despite all of the SVU trappings. But do you think that if we took this episode and we were writing it for this current season, would it like come out the same on the other end? I think the plot points would survive. And I I just think it's more the color and the background that changes. And we'd probably get a a few more intense gazes from Stabler and Benson. Uh, I think the threads would remain intact. And I think... I think maybe it would hit you over the head a little bit more about which news story it's referring to. And maybe they would probably dial down the New York sound effect soundscape. (laughs) (laughs) It's true. It's true. See, I think if they were doing this in a later season, they may not be as openly sympathetic to the accused. Turbot? Yeah, Yeah, to Turbot where they seem to really be sort of struggling here in a morality play versus a lot of the newer SVU, which is... We're going to catch the bad guys, and that's what the story's about. A lot of what early, this first season of Law & Order was about, which is missing, I think, from the current one. I mean, they do have conflict within the squad room and the current Law & Order, but this one was really like, Cragen was the moral center, saying like, this is the Constitution, guys. Like, you can't put people on a list and investigate them just because they're on a list. That's just wrong. It's just constitutionally wrong. And then you have, you know, Elliot Stabler, always being Elliot Stabler, like, you know, with, he has a million kids at home, so he's, of course, making the crime all about him. And though it's that conflict between, you know, what's the right thing to do in terms of protecting our kids and also what's the constitutional thing to do. This feels very much like old school law and order twisted into the sex crimes version of old school law and order. Because this feels very much like a McCoy, you know. Yeah, that's my point. It yes. doesn't feel to me like law and order is today because of it feels the way more like law the and order law and order and the characters well i think if you take away the sex crime aspect it's bad policing and that's what we're relating to today we're, we're investigating the wrongfully accused in pop culture and i think if you take away the connotations of of sexual abuse then really the cops zeroed in on one guy and neglected the rest of the evidence. They did, and including the fact that that campfire girl literally pointed them to the right guys, right? <laughs> a little girl named the perp in yeah. the first five minutes. The other thing that felt very current to me was when Munch accused the two dudes of appropriating black culture, which was like such a current, it felt a very like a 2016 diss to me, not like a 2000 and whatever this was, 2002. 1999. 1999. Yeah. So he accused wow. these two guys of appropriating black culture. 
You know, I thought men in black sucked. <laughs> Better than appropriating black culture for your own bad self. At least be original. It felt more current to me than that. Well, I have an observation about that, too, about Munch and Cassidy going to the park here. because You mean little young Cassidy? Yeah. Because we're so used to, like, crusty Cassidy now, crusty-hardened Cassidy. You know, I'm yes. going to come back to this a couple times. We are seven episodes into this TV series, and Munch is, has always been wry and urbane, but I, to me, he still sounds like he's being written as Munch from Homicide. Oh, totally. And not the SVU Munch. And, Faye, I don't know if you've ever seen Homicide, that police drama where Richard Belzer originated this character. But he seems like later on, he seems to be uh, in SVU, a little more conspiracy theory driven and a little more out there as opposed to, I'm super smart. Look, when something out of the ordinary happens, you look for what else is out of the ordinary before the out of ordinary happens. Don't patronize me. Actually, it's patronize. I'm super smart and I'm going to patronize you. Also, SVU broke him. It broke them all. He's seven apps in. He's still fresh. Once you see what you see on SVU, you start to blame society and the world and conspiracies. Yeah, well, yeah, but also remember this. There's seven episodes into the series and already the SVU detectives are lamenting that this sex crime work just might not be right for them. (laughs) (laughs) And you realize, oh, guys, you've got 18 more years to go. You're like, oh, no, not a kid. Especially poor Benson. I mean, you know, we, we know that, you know, eventually Cassidy goes somewhere else and then comes back sort of and... You know, Elliot leaves. We know uh, poor, uh, what's the woman detective who was only in this season? Jeffries. Yeah. <laughs> and they, they put her on a bus like uh, Mandy from the West Wing, <laughs> never to be seen again. She says to them, we've got to get out after two years. And everyone went, ha, 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 ha we're never leaving. <laughs> never. So you guess what? You're getting out after 22 episodes. Benson's like, I'm going to be the lieutenant of this division someday. <laughs> uh, no, I didn't see that coming. <laughs> Especially because she gets out a lot more and uh, does door knocking, up, whereas Cragen just sits in his desk with his jar of red licorice that I clocked Aging and backwards. doesn't get out. Yeah. Does, yeah, it doesn't get out till the end. Now in this episode, we have a "Hey, it's that guy." Hey, it's that guy. Anyone recognize Mike D? No. Uh, he's an actor by the name of Austin Lisi, and he grows up and returns to SVU in season nine in the recurring role of defense attorney Russell Hunter. His biggest case. Defending the guard in the episode where Benson goes undercover <gasps> undercover in the jail. That horrible, like, Charlie's Angels-esque episode where she almost gets raped in prison and Ice-T has <sighs> to sort of save her. That yes. episode is harrowing and awful. Well, Austin comes... It's the closest she's ever come. Sorry. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> no, well, before Porn Stash and his whole, like, situation. But yes, that was a horrible, harrowing episode. He was in that one? Yeah, he was the attorney and he has made, like, uh, four or five other appearances. So apparently, Mike D uh, turned his life around. Or maybe he got his... <laughs> maybe he got his law degree in prison and that's why he's working defense. Yeah. Well, the law books are the, the most checked out of a library. Now, tell me, is he Blondie or Brunette? Mike D was the Brunette. Okay, so he was the okay. dumb one? Or the no, s- Jimmy G was the dumb one. Okay, sorry. It's very, what, yes. You know, when their names are Mike D and Jimmy G, it is a little bit hard to keep them straight. Writers of SVU, love you guys, but maybe next time when you give guys names like Mike G and Jimmy D, you could just do a little better in distinguishing those names. Oh, they more. got much better. You never see that again in the next <laughs> 17 and a half seasons where yeah. they give some guys some street <laughs> nicknames that are ridiculous. <laughs> So, guys, what do we think of the uh, suburban lynch mob that comes out in front of Turbot's house? That was my favorite moment of the episode. Both moments with the angry mob. 
firstly, because I just love when extras have time to shine. <laughs> and secondly, because it makes me think about the logistics. Like, how did all these people get the day off work to <laughs> go and be an angry mob? It must like, have been okay, a Saturday. Two you let a child molester live here among our children? I let my son be alone with him. That damn stamp collection, he used it to lure my daughter inside. Boss, I gotta, I gotta, I gotta, I gotta, I gotta take a long lunch break. I have to get over. <laughs> I gotta get back home. There's a mini riot going on. I want to be part of. And there's no social media. They had to coordinate this. All these people somehow. <laughs> How did they do that? They just showed P- up. Passed they out flyers. Just, they just showed up, and then it was so like interesting about this episode. Again, felt very timely in a weird way that I don't think the writers in 1999 thought about. But like, it's the black cop who steps up and defends Turbot and his rights, and that you know Turbot's crime is ambiguous at this point. Nobody in this mob actually knows what he did. They just know that he's on the list, right? <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> and really, it's, it really is something. But yes, I, I do appreciate a lot of extras showing up for no reason and not understanding how they got there. That's always fun. It's always also, it reminds me of all the scenes where someone's being arrested and there's a bunch of people outside their house waiting for them to be arrested as if, you know, an announcement went out about that. And they bookended it so well with Turbot's arrest because the angry mob was back and then did a slow clap, like a in- synchronized slow clap. Yes, ah. like together. Rudy. It was like the last scene in Rudy. A lot of clapping. Or Lucas. Oh, yes. It was like the last scene in Lucas. Sorry. Be a John Hughes movie too, where they had a slow clap. Lots right? of slow clapping. Yeah. Yes, yes. The Aussie reference is the movie Strictly Ballroom. Strictly Ballroom is the Lucas of Australia. Is that what you're saying? No, it's just Baz Luhrmann. A ballroom dancing movie yes. has an amazing slow clap at the end. That's what we don't have enough of on SVU is slow claps. That's right. They now, take them to prison. Can I just like point out one like uh, breadcrumb that happened in the first half of this episode that anybody who's watched Law and Order's SVU for 18 years is able to see now mm-hmm. is clearly going to be the linchpin of the case, which is that in the first half of the episode, poor Brian Davies' parents sort of are looking sad several times for his glasses and it's sort of like a little boom where are his glasses boom where are his glasses and as a viewer who's watched this show for 18 years you know like this is definitely going to be important later guys so cops mm. why aren't you on this whole glasses thing the glasses are coming you know straight away <laughs> it's going to be a big deal later i wanted to mention a couple of 90s references as well also because 90s is coming back into fashion i think that's why those unkempt youths resonated with us is because uh-huh. we, we see them and also because Olivia mentioned Pokemon cards. Yes. Oh, yeah. <laughs> That's right. I forgot about that. And she thought she'd nailed the reference. Like, he was out looking for Pokemon cards. No, Liv, it's Pokemon. It's right. Another thing that I felt so current was that, you know, Elliot was with his family at the park and, like, little Dickie was off playing. And then all of a sudden he had, like, so much fear. Like, you got to find Dickie right away. Like, what's going on? And that actually felt very current, too. Like, we always think of, like, the culture of fear as being, like, in the 80s. And then we think, like, parents now or helicopter parents but like it really shows that this was a moment where helicopter parenting was like in full fashion and Stabler was one of those helicopter parents which is amazing considering how Kathleen turned out. Yeah and Stabler's wife didn't care she's like Dickie can roam wherever he wants we got four others. <laughs> we have so many kids he's just like an extra. We got a spare Now let's look at the second half of this episode. DA Adam Schiff sends a message to Cragen asking him to hold on to Bill Turbot He's now a pawn in a political effort over civil commitments. This is when a sex offender finishes his sentence, but the state keeps him incarcerated, arguing he poses a future threat to the community. At the time of their release, you get a psychiatrist to convince the parole board the offender can't control his impulses, that he's likely to rape again. He gets sent away to Creedmoor for the rest of his life. 
How can a man be found sane enough to stand trial, be convicted and do his time, and then upon release be found insane and locked up again? It's called civil commitment. And they need a test case. The DNA on the bike chain doesn't match the victim's choke marks, and the detectives want to cut him loose. After leaving his civil commitment hearing, Turbot is shot by Ryan's grieving father. It should be noted that after this, no one is ever shot on the courthouse steps ever again. <laughs> Except that it does seem to happen all the time. With Turbot dead, SVU turns their attention back to Mike D and Jimmy G. Their stories about that day don't match. Meantime, back at Central Park, Cassidy finds the bike chain and stays discovers Ryan's glasses. The glasses have Jimmy G's fingerprints on them. Under interrogation, the teens admit that after finding Turbot on the sex offender registry, they planned the whole crime to kill the boy and frame Turbot. Now, the idea of civil commitments is still controversial and still not widely accepted. Are you surprised that Cragen comes down on the side of due process for the sex offender? Not surprised at all. You know, what does surprise me, however, is that it was the dirt analysis guy who was able to point out the bike chain ligature marks. Apparently, when you work in the crime analysis lab in New York City, you do every job. You do the autopsy, you do the dirt analysis, you do the ligature marks, you do the car search, you do everything. That was surprising. The other thing that was surprising, and yes, I will say, Cragen was very, very pro, pro civil rights here. But Cassidy's pro I want to be a daddy thing, which kept coming up over and over and over again throughout this episode for me, a little bit of a weird distraction from the actual due process, like criminal investigation part of this case, especially since later when he gets together with Olivia Benson and she's baby crazy. He's not so much into it. Sorry to take you forward in time there for a second, but those are my thoughts about those things. It made me a little sad because you do flash forward in your mind to, yeah, this um, withered Uh, he's been undercover for too long, Cassidy, and obviously he hasn't had kids. And actually, in a few episodes' time, in season one, he'll end up in bed with Benson. So... You think, well, you're not gonna, you're not gonna be a daddy. And it was kind of sad that this job's gonna eat him up. Bea, can I ask you something else? Yes. When they went and interviewed the the original Turbot victim in this part of the episode, he's like 21 years old now, and he's like a total mess. And then he like actually describes that whole crime that was perpetrated against him. Didn't that feel like texturally weird in this episode? That scene was so dark, right? Yes, and firstly, you knew he was messed up because he was wearing a sweater vest. That was the first telltale sign. (laughs) Oh, no. Yeah, but then the story I had to tell was also pretty pretty awful, right? SVU does this a lot, though. It always reminds you how heinous the crime is, and it spells it out a lot of the time. And I was afraid of SVU for the longest time. I would see ads on TV, and I'm thinking, I'm not going to watch the rape show. That's (laughs) so grim. Right. Then once I got hooked in, I found it so soothing and so comforting that you hear this person describe the most terrible ordeal of their lives, and this policewoman just sits there with her empathy eyes and takes it all in and hears him, and you know she's going to make this better. That's right. And Cragen says he's not comfortable with situational ethics in this part of the episode. But clearly we are because we find the show comforting. (laughs) We're very comfortable (laughs) with situational ethics. Like the rape show, the horrible, horrible crime show does end up being the most comforting show of all. Exactly. as I said. Yeah. And I think a lot of a lot of viewers have said that in addition to enjoying a good police procedural, 
one of the things they get out of it is if they have a fear or maybe they're a victim themselves, they get to see the bad guy get caught and justice done. And that's a measure of comfort to them. Was that your segue into the weird show and tell portion of this episode where Elliot Stabler goes to his son Dickie's classroom and does like the sex molester show and tell? I mean, throughout the episode, we see Stabler becoming really overprotective of Dickie and in light of this crime. And it, it all comes to a head when he goes to Dickie's school for Child Molester Cop Career Day. (laughs) (laughs) See, I still feel like the writers are trying to find a way to make everyone, the audience, the actors, comfortable that this is a primetime series that's going to be about sex crimes. Yeah, and it's funny that Stabler is the one who can't call the criminals child molesters. The teacher has to say to him, yeah, the word is child molesters. But the whole scene where he goes and he's talking about his job and he's telling the kids, here's what you do. And what if they try to hurt you? Then you say no. Can we all say that really loudly? No! Right, and then you run to your mom or your dad. Well, if your dad's the one that's hurting you, then what? And you tell Dickie, and he'll tell me. Okay. You do, and there's clearly a kid in the class who's like being abused, and he's like, "Well, what if the abuser is your dad?" Ugh, broke my heart. The fact that Stabler's answer is, "Tell Dicky, and then he'll come tell me." It's like, you know what? You spent this whole episode protecting Dicky, and now you're going to make him your narc. The you're deputy. like, you're like child molester <laughs> narc hey, in Dick- his own classroom. Dicky, bring this doll in and ask Mikey to point on it for me. <laughs> Show him where the bad man touched That's him, yeah. Dicky. Uh, the whole scene to me just it, it really spoke to that weird conflict between this is a TV show about child molesters and how uncomfortable it is to talk about child molesters and how unconstitutional it is to put them on lists. There's a lot of stuff here. It was actually pretty deep. But here, I think this. Also, there is a point that that I don't know if they were trying to make, but I think came through to me, is that for all of this fear between the neighbors and between Stabler himself about a stranger coming and harming your child, statistically speaking, it's like in that class, mom or dad or somebody else that the child knows who is usually the perpetrator. You think that's what the writers were trying to say? Well, I think it's it's a (laughs) reminder that... You know, okay, Dickie wanders off to go play football. Maybe you shouldn't freak out about that because maybe that he's just playing football. You know, there should be some some context and some balance. Maybe you can't what, live your life in fear that a stranger is going to grab your kid. Maybe what you should be, like, really freaking out about is the super unconstitutional civil commitment hearing that this poor stamp-collecting guy who used to be a drug addict is now undergoing because, yes, he committed a horrible crime a long time ago that he doesn't remember, but he is a non-recidivist guy who no longer does drugs and is just riding his little dinky bicycle around that he keeps covered with a tarp randomly for some reason and is now subjected to this horrible civil commitment. That's what we should be freaking out about. Is that what you're saying the writers were saying? Rebecca, he hangs around parks a lot. He does. But he likes the parks. They have trails. And he likes collecting stamps. Yeah, you've got to be worried about the stamp collector. <laughs> yeah, because they like to lick things. I love how they gave him so many affectations, too. Like, it's not just enough that he's got to wheel his bike around, but he's got to have the stamps as well. Or that he's got to cover a tarp, right? Like, why? who does that? You don't want it to rust. But, but it's a plot point. Someone keeps messing with the bike. 
someone stole the chains. This is, comes back around because it's part of the crime. So he's got a cool bike, a retro bike. He's, he's trying to hide it and protect it. It's, there's nothing nefarious about hiding the bike. Yeah, but I think they is right that they did perhaps overdo it with the affectations. It was like he was holding a sign over his head saying, like, I definitely molest children, right? But, okay. I, he had pedo vibes. And he, his job was, I work as a recycling sorter. <laughs> they even gave him a weird job. Green even, bottles, clear bottles. I mean, I got bottles all the time. How did he even afford an apartment by himself if he was a recycling sorter? That's In what New I want York. to know, yeah. It begs a, a larger question is, as the audience, should we feel sympathy for the child molester? Because we know that he is not involved in this crime and there is a process against him, even though he's done his time. Are they setting this up for kind of feel bad for a guy who did something really bad? Via, what do you think? Well, it's humanized him. It humanizes them. And I think that's important. You don't necessarily have to say he's good, he's bad. I think that's where Stabler falls down in this episode. He's so literal telling children, you know, there is a bad guy out there that will hurt you. It's it's not just a bad guy. It's everywhere. It's TV commercials that can hurt you. It's politicians that say bad things. It's everything can hurt you. It's just about looking at good and bad in a more complex way. And I think that's important to do. Like everyone makes mistakes. Some of them are hideous. And it's, it's just important to figure out how people get there and how they get through them. I, it's funny. I'm really conflicted because I want to think that that's what this show was trying to do. Like there were so many things about this episode that I really, really liked. There were so many things about it that were deep, that felt so current and then, like, in the part of the episode that's, like, around the climax of the episode where, like, the shooting happens and all these things happen and you're like, oh, I'm supposed to be really in it now. That's when Cassidy and Stabler have that super awkward conversation oh, about boy. how, like, investigating sex crimes has, like, ruined their sex lives because when they're with a woman, all they can think about is, like, uterus, cervix, like, all of, like, the, the, like, the weird biological terms that come from being, like, a detective. And I'm like, wait, what is the message here? Is the message here that we're supposed to be, feel bad for the cops who are, I, like... You just don't want to get a Valentine's card from Stabler, I think, is <laughs> what they mean. Apparently yeah. you don't, no. Yeah, I'd be happy if I never hear Stabler say the word cervix again. <laughs> <laughs> and... Also, I, it was interesting because they kept hammering it over the head that this is a child, so the crime is much worse. And it was interesting that Benson just treated it. I like that she was all business this episode. She was just getting it done, taking statements, because to her, every victim is equal. It's not one is worse than the other. We're all affected. It was just that big moment where Stabler takes the moment to say this was an eight-year-old boy. Whereas she takes a step back and says, no, let's get the job done because every story is important. Faye, I know on your notes you wrote down, oh, no, he didn't. Mm. What was that about? You know what that was. I don't that know was what that was moment. about. What was it? That was the moment on the courthouse steps. In Ryan's neighborhood alone, there were nine sex offenders. You don't have children. You don't understand. You don't have, you don't have children. You don't understand. That's right. No, sir. <laughs> and it's funny. So the roles are reversed a little bit here at the start. You think Benson's going to be the maternal one because she's talking to the children at the start of the episode, trying to get their statements. And then by the end, it's Stabler that's the bleeding heart and she's, you know, getting the job done. And that moment where he calls her out on her ability to empathize because she's not a mother, no thank you. Like, he's mommy shaming her and he's he's just got no right. Yeah, but is he really the bleeding heart, though, when he was the one who was, like, so hardcore going after the wrong person? When, by the way, the campfire girl, as we mentioned, totally <laughs> pointed the cops to the Why right Why do you keep guys. talking about the campfire girl? Because to me, it was, like, A, so iconic that they would call it campfire girl. It's like a TV trope. Like, you're not allowed to say Girl Scouts of America on TV. Like, you know how, like, you're not allowed to say super 
Super Bowl unless you're doing commentary about the Super Bowl, which I find hilarious. Yes, it's sort it, of like Hudson University. It's like yeah, everything bad goes on at Hudson University. <laughs> that cesspool. We are Hudson, where the bad guys go to school. Because she solved the crime. She did, and they ignored yeah. her as soon as they learned there was a sex offender registry like list, and there was a guy on it. They ignored the fact that she told them who would hurt these kids. And then there was that amazing interrogation scene. Can we please talk about that for a yeah, second? Yeah, I mean, in the end, we find out it's the punk kids who set Turbot up for a, a thrill kill murder. Which I didn't fully understand their plan. Well, you know what is supposed to help you understand it better? Is that if you go back and watch the scene where they're going back and forth, they have the two kids in separate rooms doing the classic cop thing of like, he's talking about you and he's talking about you, so you better tell the right story first kind of thing. What side of the park was it on? Exactly. Yeah. And they figure out that one of them is smart and one of them is dumb. It's very much like good cop, bad cop, the whole thing. But my favorite part of the scene was this little trick they did, which... Maybe, again, pre-HD TV was more effective, but they're kind of like in a cinder block room. And there comes a point in the scene where they sort of like morph it and they're going back and forth in the two and they're sitting in front of like school portrait backdrops. They're dissolving back and forth between the two confessions. Yeah. And clearly the backdrop of the cinder block wall was not going to work for that. So they just went into like a fuzzy gray bad school photos. Here's how we murdered this kid. It was so weird and it was so I don't know like I never really understood why they committed the crime either because they figured out the guy was on a list and they thought oh this would be fun and the sex offender website came with instructions that they thought they had to follow and I think because it was they were trying to be artistic with the fragments of dialogue and cutting back and forth but I kept thinking you know you're leaving details out that I need to know here yeah, but you know and what? Then we did that. Why? All we know is that the kid was a loser anyway, right? I mean, that was all we needed to know. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I mean, yeah come we on. don't. Well, we 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 kind of get a hint at why the victim. We hear more about why setting up Turbot. You know, it Turbot seems, was the real. Seems victim. like well, yeah, but it seems like there were two things that came together. They saw an opportunity to set Turbot up for the murder of Ryan. Now, if they went to the trouble to get that bicycle chain ahead of time, then there's premeditation there. They're obviously trying to set Turbot up for something. And then later on, like you said, yeah, I know the kid. He's like lives two doors down from me. That's who they picked. They picked somebody who they thought they could victimize. I still didn't get why they did it. I didn't. I, I don't think that one of them being smart and one of them being dumb. That was the only explanation we got. And they both seemed pretty dumb. Yeah. And I, I just, I couldn't figure out if it was a mastermind plan where they were going to frame this sex offender to put him behind bars for the sake of the community, or if they just went, oh, here's a thing we can do. We can abuse a child for kicks. I couldn't sort out which was which. You know why? You know what was missing? Because it sort of ended right after their interrogation. And in modern day law and order, they have that whole thing where they drop the anvil at the end and they're like, the real monster was right here all along. And we didn't get that. Like, <laughs> like This was back in the day where they thought they could just leave it ambiguous and the audience would sort of get it. Except the writing wasn't yet quite good enough. that It wasn't like The Wire, for instance, where mm-hmm. they could do that and you'd be like, oh my God, I'm, I'm different now. The writing wasn't that good, but we also didn't get that little coda scene of the you know prosecutor and the cop talking together and wrapping it all up. Well, I think it probably would be Stabler going over to that little boy's house and beating up the father or <clears throat> pulling him out or something like that. And also we didn't have a lawyer we recognized. We had the prosecutor who was Jessica Hecht from one of the other episodes you've discussed. That's right. And we had... The African-American DA. Person of color. Who I don't remember ever seeing again. Is it just me? I've never seen it. What DA? 
the DA who was prosecuting the case, the and one she who was, was a psychologist. She was no, she was a lawyer. There was also a Sorry, psychologist, the, but there was also a lawyer. Was, yeah, she was the DA, and Jessica Hicks, I misspoke, was the she was the defense, defense attorney. Yeah, you, yeah. Don't, you don't even remember the DA. You don't even remember her because she was never in any other episodes. Oh, that poor thing. She thought she had a great role. She gave it all she got, and no one can remember <laughs> who she was. <laughs> no, she's she's no BD Wong. Let's put it that way. <laughs> Which also makes me think. I think about a lot about the actors and the fact that they must get the call from the agent. Oh, I'm so exciting. I've got a job. I've got a great part for you. You're going to play a pedophile. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but if you're like a Barba, you could come back in a later season and become the DA. Yeah, but I, they'd probably say, hey, just uh, FYI, don't ride the subway Thursday morning after the episode. <laughs> Let's take a look at the real life story that inspired this episode. It's time for Rip from the Headlines. You think you know who did it. You think you know who did it. But you don't know who did it. You don't know who did it. Rip from the headlines. Though the story focuses on the Turbot case, the conclusion to the mystery is based on one of the most infamous crimes of the early 20th century. Wealthy, smart and cocky, Nathan Leopold and Richard Loeb were college students from Chicago. As an intellectual exercise, they spent months planning to kidnap and kill their neighbour, 14-year-old Bobby Franks. On May 21, 1924, Leopold and Loeb convinced Bobby to get into a rented car. Once in the back seat, Loeb struck him in the head with a chisel, then strangled him. They dumped Bobby in a pre-dug grave and poured acid on his body. To confuse the police, the pair sent Bobby's parents notes and phone calls with elaborate instructions on paying a ransom. But the plan fell apart when Bobby's body was discovered. Investigators also found a pair of custom-made eyeglasses belonging to Leopold. The men soon confessed, saying they were motivated by the thrill to kill and their desire to commit, quote, the perfect crime. Leopold and Loeb's case inspired the Hitchcock film Rope, Compulsion, Native Son, Murder by Numbers, and many other stories where the killers thought themselves too smart to get caught. So Leopold and Lowe both had genius IQs. How close was this detail to this TV episode? When I heard the beginning of that newscast of what this real episode is based on, via, excuse my language, I don't know if you guys swear down under, although I do know oh, what yeah. you do, shut the fuck up. This is about Leopold and Loeb. I know that crime, and I would never in a million years have thought this episode was about that. Those kids were not rich. They were not smart. It wasn't one of their pairs of eyeglasses. There's nothing to me about this. Like, the plot, it, it wasn't exactly a genius plot that they came up with. I am, I am shocked. Well, okay, it doesn't have to be word for word. Like, one of them needs to be named... Nathan and the other one needs to be named Richard. Right, but in later episodes of SVU, this would be two Hudson University frat boys coming from yeah. privileged families, and all the interviews would take place in like Upper East Side townhouses. That is not what this episode looked like. I would never have connected this episode to that crime. That's kind of how I like my ripped from the headlines to go. I don't want to recognize them. Firstly, because I can't believe that's real life, that story. That's hideous. This is the world we live in. But secondly, 
Yeah, I live with the news. I don't need to watch my fiction be the news. There was one case that SVU did later on, which was the Chris Brown and Rihanna case, mm-hmm. that was essentially just a control F, find and replace in the document, take out their names and put in new names, and then bang, the script goes. And Except poor Rihanna in that episode ends up dead, which is horrible. Oh, yeah, it's awful. But it's, sometimes I'm like, no, I, I just cringe now when they, in three weeks after a story breaks, you know it's going to be on SVU, and you think, just take a little bit of poetic license, guys. It's, this, is, it, you, this is why we want to be writers. Use your imagination. It's fun. I think the Leopold and Loeb thing is more like a writing prompt. This was 1924 this, is, this happened? Yeah, but it's it's one of the most famous crimes of all yes, time. Yes, but they went back 75 years. Because it's years. a famous story. Yes, I know. There's nothing. Dick Wolf doesn't say, okay, let's go get something from five weeks ago. No, but he does now. He does now he because does now. they went back and they already did Leopold and Loeb. <laughs> no, my, my feeling is definitely like at this point in the series they were doing more. And by the way, Law and Order at this point in Law and Order was doing the same thing. They were going back in time and taking the sort of morality play crimes like I don't know, uh, the Kitty Genovese thing we've seen over and over again played out in this series, you know, the, the Lindbergh baby kidnapping. The, he's going back in time and taking an iconic crime and doing it in a present way that feels present for 1999. But the, the crime isn't even present. There is no, like, I, I, I don't think there's enough there there to really tie the real story to this episode of, of SVU. Well, what was uh, not part of Leopold and Loeb's perfect crime was the idea to pin it on somebody. They just thought that because they were so smart that they could just plan this and confuse everybody. They actually, stupid Mike D and Jimmy G actually took Leopold and Loeb's perfect crime and put it one step farther ahead. Yeah, uh, Campfire Girl was able to figure out exactly what happened <laughs> in the first five minutes. Another connection was in the Leopold and Loeb case, Leopold dropped his custom-made eyeglasses next to the body. I mean, there's apparently these had like a special hinge on them that there were only three of them sold in Chicago. No Warby Parkers then? Is that no what you're Warby saying? No Warby Parkers then. <laughs> Instead, in this episode, we had the unicorn bike chain because there's only one type of bike chain in the city. That's right. Right, right. <laughs> if you're going to commit a crime with a partner, you've really got to make sure that your surnames match really well, like like musical theatre partnerships, mm. like these guys, Leopold and Loeb. You don't Pat- think Mike D and Jimmy G don't go together? <laughs> that that kind of rolls off the tongue. How about this? You ready? Yeah. Pasha said Lavoie. Boom. You guys yeah. could go yeah. around killing people, I think. <laughs> Absolutely. And we live on different continents, so nobody would know. Be the perfect crime. But you know, over the years, we have seen this pattern in real life and on TV, too, where two or more, more people are involved in a thrill kill, and usually one of them is more dominant over the other, over the rest of them. That's right. We had a real-life case like that here in New Hampshire, the case that happened in Mount Vernon, which was a horrible, horrible well, crime. You have the D.C. sniper. Yep. You have the Dartmouth murders. Those are just ones that come off the top of my in head. In the U.K., there was those the, teens who killed that little kid. There's a pair of oh, serial yeah. killers. I mean, it does it does happen because usually most single perpetrator homicides, they have a cause. They have a, a grudge against a victim. Two people coming together to do that, they don't have the same grudge. So it's always sort of motivated by something else. You know, a lot of times it's sort of, you know, one guy following the other to chase the thrill. So in me and Vea's case, it would be our shared love of SVU. Is that what you're saying? Well, if you want to go kill Dick Wolf, I suppose so. (laughs) 
I don't want to kill Dick Wolf. I love Dick Wolf. I love Ice Tea. I love Mariska. I love all of them. Ice Tea could stand to have a few more drama classes. <laughs> <laughs> you think he basically says all of his dialogue in the same way? Is that what you're saying? I think he lucked on a pretty sweet gig in showbiz, that guy. <laughs> <laughs> Well, that's going to do it for us. Thank you to our guest, Vea Pashos. Where can our listeners follow you online? Vea Pashos, P-A-S-H-O-S, on Twitter, or Neighbours, the Neighbours Recap Podcast on iTunes and Stitcher. And we've just launched a website, NeighboursPod.com. And you don't need to watch the show to enjoy the podcast. Well, that's my goal. Well, that's our goal, too. You that's know? our goal, too, because who's going to go back to season one of SVU to watch this episode before they listen to this podcast? Some people do. They like that. <laughs> Rebecca Lavoie, how can listeners follow you? They can find me on Twitter and Instagram at Reb Lavoie. And, of course, they can hear me on our other podcast, Crime Writers On. And you can track me on Twitter at Kevin P. Flynn. You can also tweet to us at Law & Order Pod. Our newsreader was Philip Ockelford. Our theme music was composed and performed by Uncanny Valleys. Line editing by Henry Lavoie. If you enjoyed this podcast, leave a review on iTunes. It helps others discover this program just like you did. All clips in this podcast were used in compliance with U.S. Copyrights Act Fair Use Exemption for criticism and commentary. Special thanks to the elite squad of the Law & Order Wiki community for preserving the evidence. If you want to know what episodes we're talking about in our upcoming shows, go to lawandorderpodcast.com. These Are Their Stories was recorded in Studio C and is a production of Partners in Crime Media. Partners in Crime Media.